0: Okay, hello everyone and welcome to Actus Radio, the nation's only radio program dedicated to the clinical documentation improvement profession. Actus Radio is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bring you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and Actus. Today, Wednesday, June 20th marks our 99th program. That's kind of a, a big number and I will be talking about uh, our next show uh, at the end of this one. So my name is Brian Murphy, director of ACTUS, the Association of Clinical Documentation Improvement Specialists, and I'm your host for today's program, Gray Areas in Coding. I'm joined today by my co-host at left, Alan Frady. Uh, Alan is a CDI education specialist for us here at ACTUS, where he teaches clinical documentation improvement boot camps, as well as serving as a subject matter expert. Alan's an accomplished consultant with a background in coding and documentation. He has 12 plus years uh, as a coding consultant, two years as a coding director, and six years as a CDI consultant. And his nursing background includes work as a case manager and in cardiovascular care and ICU, as well as telemetry. And welcome to the program, Alan.
1: Thank you, I'm looking forward to the show today.
0: Absolutely. Next, I'd like to introduce today's industry guest. So we have with us today uh, Fasal Hussein, MD, CCDS, CDIP, and CCS. Uh, Fasal is the Corporate CDI Director in Clinical Services at CHS PSC LLC, which consists of 120 hospitals in 20 states. Uh, prior to his current role, Dr. Hussein managed the CDI program at Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital Somerset, and was involved in numerous initiatives, including changing the workflow for patient safety indicators and hacks, updating query forms for ICD-10 compliance, and creating an action plan to collaborate with case management to reduce symptom DRGs. Uh, Fassel's been doing quite a bit of work with us here lately at Actus. He's been on our conference committee the last two years, and if you were lucky enough to attend our conference at, in san antonio our 11th annual conference this past month this past month you might recognize Fassl as one of our speakers and i'm pleased to have him on his very first actus radio today and maybe not his last hopefully not so welcome to the program Fassl.
2: thanks for the introduction brian happy to be here for my first actus radio appearance all right
0: well As we always do, we're going to start with a poll question related to today's topic. I'm going to ask our audience to uh, weigh in on the answer that best pertains to them. It reads, how would you rate your knowledge of codes and coding guidelines? Would you say that you're at an advanced level, meaning you're frequently dealing in the very gray issues? We're going to be covering a couple on today's show. Perhaps you might describe it as intermediate, enough to be dangerous. Um, Basic, maybe you just clarify the principal diagnosis and some secondary diagnoses and leave it at that. Uh, Would you say that it's none, not part of my job? Believe it or not, I have heard of some CDI programs where coding assignment is entirely left up to the coding department and CDI is purely focused on diagnosis and uh, documentation clarity. Or not applicable. Again, how would you rate your knowledge of codes and coding guidelines? Would you just say advanced, intermediate, basic, um, none, not really part of your job, or perhaps codes are not applicable to what you're doing right now? All right, we've got about 80% of our audience that have voted. Thanks to those who have voted, we're going to go ahead and close this out and we will come back to the results um, in just a few minutes. All right, as I mentioned, our guest today is Faisal Hussein. Faisal, welcome to the program and thanks for being a part of Actus Radio.
2: Thanks, Brian.
0: All right, well, we're here to talk great areas in coding and there are many. Um, I've heard coding described to me as part science but also part art. I think that's a pretty accurate description and so there are bound to be scenarios up for interpretation and for which clear guidance doesn't always exist, you know, in the guidelines or in coding clinic. So let's just jump right in with a big one, Um, you know, clinical validation, we'll tackle this one first. Um, So the official guidelines for coding and reporting guideline um, IA-19 has created a lot of issues and it reads, now, the assignment of a diagnosis code is based on the provider's diagnostic statement that the condition exists a provider's statement that the patient has a particular condition is sufficient the code assignment is not based on clinical criteria used by the provider to establish the diagnosis so I think we're all familiar with that. Many of us maybe have heard of that, but what has led to has it's led to some to believe the clinical validation is not really necessary. In that, if a physician documents the diagnosis, the CDI and the coding department's off the hook. You can safely code it. Um, but that's not that's not the case. And there is an also coding clinic to consider, which consider which has added more um, in this scenario. And that coding clinic is fourth quarter 2017 page 110 which states if after querying the attending physician affirms that a patient has a particular condition in spite of certain clinical parameters not being met the facility should request the physician document the clinical rationale and be prepared to defend the condition if challenged in an audit so um let's just jump right in and start talking about this issue guideline 1A-19, um, as well as coding clinic and clinical validation. Maybe I'll turn it over to Alan first to weigh in on this, and then we'll hear uh, Fassel's opinion on this.
1: Thanks, Brian. Uh, The first guideline that you mentioned, what we affectionately refer to as guideline 19, has certainly been a hot topic of conversation over the last year for sure. And we have encountered some coders uh, of the mindset that this takes them off the hook, and really, I don't blame them. They've got a, a lot of uh, production issues going on, and for them to stop and do a query and have these in-depth analysis is really not always part of their job description. They're, you know, they're trying to read the record and get codes on it. So this is kind of looked at it as like a free pass. Okay, the so doctor said it, I can report it. Then you have coding clinics saying, well, not so fast, because we know this creates denials. So. I think that these confusing guidelines uh, from the different cooperating parties underscores the need for coders and CDIs to be more active in their governing organizations, asking questions, commenting to CMS, making suggestions even to the Coordination and Maintenance Committee, but in this particular instance, I think this can be solved by a staggered procedure where you first query, right, and then if the physician insists that that's the correct diagnosis, well, then you report it, and if you have patterns of Uh, problematic behavior you simply escalate those now let's talk about a bit of a gray area of coding professionals not picking up diagnoses that are not documented uh, because they're only in the previous encounter but they're not in the current encounter and a good example of this is hiv reporting so an an hiv or to say an aids diagnosis can be picked up or, or is supposed to be picked up and reported for every subsequent encounter regardless of the number of encounters and that is a CDC rule however many uh, coding professionals even though that is in the coding guidelines are reluctant to do this because they don't see the UHCDS definitions being met and aren't sure if it is a reportable condition Uh, and I think this creates a lot of confusion about looking back at historical information and when to write a query can you use historical information to write a query uh, you know, it, it comes up with heart failure and echocardiograms. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn that over to Fassel and see what thoughts he has on this.
3: Thanks for bringing up this, this issue about HIV-slash-AIDS reporting, Alan. Um, before I discuss the coding conundrum related to AIDS, let's briefly go over the clinical definition of AIDS. AIDS is the outcome of chronic HIV infection and consequent depletion of CD4 cells. It's defined as a CD4 cell count of less than 200, or the presence of any of the AIDS-defining conditions, such as pneumocystis C pneumonia, which was previously known as pneumocystis carinii pneumonia, or things like Kaposi sarcoma or disseminated mycobacterium avium infection, and etc. As far as the coding is concerned, as you pointed out, the official coding guidelines under Section C, Chapter Specific Guideline 2F. Previously Diagnosed HIV-Related Illness. It states, patient with any known prior diagnosis of an HIV-related illness should be coded to B20. Once a patient has developed an HIV-related illness, the patient should always be assigned B20 on every subsequent admission or encounter. Patients previously diagnosed with B20 or AIDS should never be assigned to R75 or Z v21 codes so my thing is this guideline looks at aids with its out of date once aids always aids view simply based on clinical grounds it really doesn't make sense to me I feel HIV and AIDS codes need to be expanded we have come a long way from 1980s when telling someone they had AIDS was like giving them a death sentence prior to introduction and widespread use of the anti-combination antiretroviral therapy, or ART. AIDS-associated illnesses were the principal cause of morbidity and mortality associated with HIV infection. You know, with all the advancements in antiretroviral medications, these patients are now not only living for much longer periods of time, but they're functionally active too. You know, the way I see it, currently there is no code for advanced HIV infection, which is a commonly used term by the physicians to refer to an infection when the CD4 count is below 50. Also, one could argue why do these patients need to forever be labeled AIDS? Ideally, when patients achieve immune restitution, for example, by an increase in CD4 count more than 200 with antiretroviral therapy and do not have any AIDS-defining conditions, they should no longer be considered to have AIDS just chronic HIV infection. In fact, if you look at the clinical indications for discontinuing opportunistic infection prophylaxis in HIV-infected individuals, in most cases, they ask for prophylaxis to be discontinued when the CD4 count increases from less than 200 to more than 200 for more than three months in response to ART, or if the HIV RNA remains below the limits of detection for at least three to six months. And this is because of reduced mortality risk in these patients. So even from resource utilization point of view, or to accurately reflect risk adjustment in our patient population, this guideline clearly needs revision. However, until that happens, make sure AIDS is documented during every visit for now. I always recommend this because this will protect you against instances when coders inadvertently miss out on capturing AIDS or B20, since they rarely go back to see previous admission encounters due to productivity demand. Also, you may protect yourself against a pair denial based on auditor's view of just the concurrent encounter and not seeing quote-unquote AIDS documentation. Just treat each encounter separately and make sure AIDS is documented during every visit. Now, what this will do is, it will probably lead to another conclusion, especially for the newer CDSs. Coding Clinic is very clear that it is inappropriate to go back to a previous encounter to assign a code for current encounter. The documentation for current encounter must support the diagnosis coded. Also if you look at the AHIMA Query Practice Brief, it also tells you that clinical indicators should be derived from current encounter. So how do we comply with these coding guidelines to report aids on every encounter without referring to previous records also keeping in view the overarching cms goal of reducing healthcare costs how can it not be considered wasteful and unnecessary for physicians to repeat tests tests such as cd4 count or viral load just for the purposes of code assignment when information is already available another example would be when dealing with chronic stable heart failure without the mention about the type Now most conscientious providers will not do an echo on these patients just to find out the type of heart failure. So can we use an EF from an echo done during a prior admission to build a query? I believe perhaps in cases like these or the one we discussed for AIDS, I feel it would be okay for, uh, for us to query the physician for clinical information that is present in an old record. As long as there are both clinical indicators and the diagnosis meets the UHDDS definition for a principal or secondary diagnosis i don't think it would be wrong if a physician documents that the patient for example has CHF and a query is sent that discusses a previously performed echocardiogram or if a previous uh, record mentions that if the record mentions the patient is hiv positive and the query discusses a previously established ACE status of that patient Ideally, you want these queries to be done in conjunction with a face to face interaction to highlight the importance of addressing all relevant chronic conditions during each encounter. I do agree that we do want more guidance from AHIMA on this in the new practice brief. So maybe it will be addressed by AHIMA in their upcoming publications. I recommend. Being on the lookout as this is becoming a problem at numerous sites now that everyone is moving beyond just CCs and MCCs
2: towards capturing HCCs and all chronic clinically significant conditions.
0: All right. Well, thanks, Vasil. That's a uh, you know some great discussion of an important topic: use of prior records. Um, Actis and AHIMA will be collaborating on a revision to the practice brief, and this is going to be an issue that we will be addressing in the brief, and um, I completely agree with your sentiments about querying from prior records, as long as there are clinical indicators. So some good discussion there on, on a definite gray area. Let's, um, let's talk about another gray area. This one is regarding um, encephalopathy. So. Uh, You may recall there is a coding clinic that recommends against reporting transient self-limiting encephalopathy in a post-ictal state, but does recommend reporting encephalopathy in a patient who is simply hypoglycemic from diabetes, which is also usually a transient and easily easily remediated state or situation. So we've got a seemingly contradictory issue here. I know Alan this was one that you brought up as something you wanted to talk about on today's show So why don't we why don't we start with you?
1: Yep, uh, it's another example of what looks to me to be contradictory philosophies coming out of the same uh, AHA encoding clinic You know as you mentioned a post state is usually both transient and self-limiting So it's understandable that it might not qualify, you know for MCC level money you already have the seizure documented. The postictal state is pretty much going to be integral to that. What's confusing to me, though, is that hypoglycemia in a diabetic is also uh, often short-lived. It's not completely self-limiting, but you know sometimes the treatment uh, is handled by the patient themselves, or it's, it's very minimally invasive. It's cheap, it's low resource utilization. It can be done by the RN. Sometimes even without a physician order. Based on a protocol, they already have a hypoglycemic or a diabetic protocol, and it actually gets managed in the in the immediate response by the nurse. So it, it makes sense, you know, if if either of these patients become altered for an unusually prolonged state of time, or if additional resources have to be put into place, if something out of the ordinary happens. Okay, but then you would report it and take the MCC money. What doesn't make sense to me is the inconsistency. And the guidelines, and, and basically what appears to be the thought process behind the guidelines in the differences between these two conditions. What do you think, Fassel? Mm-hmm.
3: I completely agree with you, Alan. You know, both of these coding clinics really give out mixed messages. Um, it doesn't make sense to code a transient self limiting condition in one instance and not to do so in another. And to take the um, conversation further, I also have an issue with the timeline of 48 hours for post confusion cited in the coding clinic from fourth quarter of 2013. I feel 48 hours is the very end of the spectrum if you were to list the durations for all the post-triptal phases for seizure patients. While the literature does say that post period almost always lasts less than 48 hours, it is by no means the average or usual duration for a typical post phase to last. In fact, in my own experience, I've usually seen these patients get back to their pre-ictal baseline mentation within a few hours. It all obviously depends on the type and the size of seizure activity. In fact, providers usually investigate other causes of post-ictal neurological deficits when the post-ictal state lasts for more than 24 hours, not 48. This would typically involve doing neuroimaging studies like MRI, maybe also doing an LP, other blood workups such as CBC, blood cultures, and et cetera. So not just from clinical standpoint, but also from resource utilization point of view, I disagree with the 48 hour that coding clinic re- references. As far as reporting encephalopathy in the simple hypoglycemic attack is concerned, I always advise extreme caution to both CDSs and coders. Despite of the unfortunate language used in the coding clinic, I always tell everyone to use critical thinking and see how much effort was invested in treating, monitoring, or evaluating the altered mental status and an an encephalopathy. If all it took was just an orange juice or IV dextrose and the patient recovered pretty fast, which is usually the case in these patients, then an MCC of metabolic encephalopathy is not at all justified. You know, I wish there could be yet another clarification for this issue, third one at that, since this coding clinic from third quarter of 2016 was a revision of an older coding clinic from 2015. And I hope the
2: new revision would advise to clinically validate the encephalopathy before coding it.
1: all right i want to point out uh thank you for for mentioning the 48 hour period i when i first saw that i did a double take when you're actually taking care of one of these patients if you can't get what's called a focal reaction out of the patient in pretty short order you start to make phone calls and use additional resources and definitely as you said you're not waiting 48 hours you're going to start doing additional work up after three four or five hours there's going to be some additional work how much work could vary on a case-by-case basis but I think the 48-hour uh, rule as a blanket statement it's just kind of silly.
0: You know, these types of issues, and uh, folks on the phone might be interested to hear that we're we're starting up a new uh, regulatory committee to look at some of these issues that come out that maybe have, you know, things in coding clinic that need clarification. The only way to do that is to write to coding clinic and hope that it gets published in the main publication. Um, so we're going to be forming a committee. We're actually in the process of putting that together with Alan spearheading it to tackle some of these issues, um, which we really need to give a lot of focus to, and, and I'm glad to hear we're going to be getting that underway. So congratulations, Alan. I know we haven't even got started, but I think it's an important, uh, important new committee to, to start up under the auspices of ACTUS to, to deal with some of these gray issues. And Maybe just to wrap up here, because I know we're, we're past time here, but just any advice, um, we'll start with you, Fassel, on best practices for dealing with these types of gray areas, you know, getting CDI professionals and coding professionals as well as physicians, let's not forget the third partner in this, on the same page and resolving these difficult situations as they occur.
3: Look, I'm a firm believer in saying knowledge is power. So I will advise CDSs to try to be on top of the coding clinics and stay as up-to-date as possible with these ever-changing coding recommendations as much as possible. I also cannot stress enough on the need for critical thinking and working out of your silos, having those important face-to-face conversations with the providers, and repeated education to them about documentation integrity and also about these coding inconsistencies and inadequacies. I will also emphasize on talking to peers in coding so that you can understand their challenges and predicaments when assigning codes, as it will result in you addressing these with the providers during your education to them. I owe a lot of my coding knowledge to my discussions with my coding colleagues. I learned
2: so much from them over the years, as it is always a good idea to hear a different perspective on things. What do you think, Alan?
1: Well, I, for the CDs that are listening, I would encourage you to and as you just hinted to, try to step out of the training that you receive where you learn two or three data points or two or three set of criteria and you base your entire you know profession on on if I see x and y, I'm always going to do a query. You have got to start to expand your knowledge base, otherwise we run the risk of going into non compliance adding diagnoses when they're not necessary, or missing diagnoses when they in fact exist.
0: All right. Thanks, guys. Some great discussion here. All right, we're going to go back to our poll question. Our audience poll results are in. Before I share them, I'll repeat the question here briefly. How would you rate your knowledge of codes and coding guidelines? So should be seeing the results on the screen. Uh, 28% about a quarter of our audience would describe their their level of knowledge as advanced uh, 50% majority describe it as intermediate or enough to be dangerous uh, 21% say basic not much beyond just a principal or secondary diagnosis assignment uh, about 1% say it's not really part of their job so uh, maybe I'll start with you, Fasil. Any any thoughts on our poll results today?
3: I actually did expect these results, you know, with most listeners considering their, their coding knowledge as advanced or intermediate. Since most CDI departments work so closely with coders, with CDS is really acting as a bridge between the coders and the providers. You know, our job really requires us to be familiar with coding. I would just caution everyone against the complacency,
2: and just making sure that they're up to date with the new coding guidelines um, and coding clinic. How about yourself there,
0: Alan?
1: Uh, so those of you who answered in the 21% basic, not much beyond PDX, <laughs> thank you for being honest. Uh, I'm actually pretty happy with the results. We only had, you know, very little that said not part of my job, and that makes me feel good. But of course, there's always more work to do, even if you're in the advanced, category, you should never stop uh, trying to learn what the next new bit of information is.
0: Yep, absolutely. All right, well, let's move on to our In the News segment. Uh, In the News is a regular segment of Actus Radio featuring the latest news and industry updates relevant to the CDI profession. Today, I'd like to discuss, and you should be seeing on your screen there, I believe, the release of the AHRQ national scorecard on hospital acquired conditions Um, you can review the complete report on the ahrq website Um, i have another link to that here Um, and this pulls up really an in-depth document that describes the methodology the cost per hack and um, and some of the, the trends here this is really the summary page i'm showing you here and i'll of course provide these links in the post show notes But essentially, the AHRQ National Scorecard on Hospital Acquired Conditions is a report that shows progress toward the goal of reducing hospital acquired conditions or hacks. These, of course, are conditions that a patient develops while in the hospital um, being treated for something else. So, based on the hack reduction seen in 2015 and 2016 compared to 2014, the AHRQ has estimated a total of 350,000 fewer hacks. Uh, these reductions have led to projections that about 2.9 billion in costs were saved, and more importantly, about 8,000 inpatient deaths were averted. Um, data reported in late 2016 estimated that from 2010 through 2014, hack reductions totaled 2.1 million, which resulted in approximately 19.9 billion in cost savings and 87,000 fewer hack-related deaths. Um, HHS has set a goal to reduce hacks by 20% from 2014 through 2019. It's specifically tied to CMS's Hospital Improvement Innovation Networks, which work collaboratively with federal and private partners uh, toward achieving this aim and building on prior successes. So, some really good news here. You know, AHRQ estimates that if we do ultimately hit that 20% hack reduction, the hack rate in 2019 would equate to 78 per 1,000 discharges, which would mean about 1.8 million fewer hacks, um, and um, associated with 19.1 billion in cost savings and 53,000 fewer deaths. have we, w- if we do reach this 20% reduction, so an admirable goal. There's been some great news to report here on the progress in the war against hacks. You know, more work to be done. Um, as I referred to, the hack rate continues to drop, but not as steeply or as quickly in prior years. You know, again, it did it did drop um, quite a bit more from 2010 through 2014 as opposed to this last reporting period. But the numbers are still trending in the right direction with that 8% drop. Uh, again, the the news story in full is here. It's really cool as uh, AHRQ has provided some nice um, infographics. You know, I, I think, frankly, these are great to print out and they give you a nice PDF full version. You can share them with your physicians. I'm sure some physicians will keep hearing about burnout and being physicians being prompted to document in the chart. I know that hacks are a, are a, a big part of what CDIs are doing these days and CDI departments are focusing on these days, but we're, we're showing measurable results here. Um, and much of that is due to the work of cdi departments, and so you should be inclined to share this data with your physicians. Um, some really nice information here to check out. Again, I will link to those after the show, but maybe Fassel, just a quick comment on um on this report and you know how much of a focus should hacks and psIS be for any organization's cdi department?
2: Sure, I think overall
3: it is a very good report. And it is nice to see that we are trending downwards in terms of the overall reported hacks. You know, this is what started this whole transformation of our healthcare system when it was included back in late 90s, early 2000s, that, you know, we cannot improve the overall quality of care without reducing the preventable deaths and injuries from medical errors. I certainly agree with you that, you know, there is still a lot of work to be done. But in order to rely on on our data to make any decisions, we have to make sure that the data is clean and reliable. And I think that's where CDI has such a huge role to play. The improvements that we see in this report are probably due to both better documentation and true patient safety improvements uncovered by the hospitals due to the better documentation. Um, As far as PSIs and hacks are concerned, I think they need to be at the very center of any CDI efforts to improve the overall quality at any organization, especially in this value-based purchasing era that we live in. You know, next year in 2019, there will be a 2% withhold on on all DRG payments. And based on how hospitals perform in comparison to others, they will get a portion of this back. Since patient safety forms such a significant portion of these quality comparisons, it's imperative that every CDI department across the nation becomes as familiar with all hacks and PSIs as possible. Going forward, CMS wants to move away from the manual data abstraction and AHRQ is exploring the feasibility of automated approaches to the data abstraction in order to further improve the efficiency and reduce the cost burden. This will most likely come from your claims data, which again behooves us to start looking beyond just the CC, MCC capture and focus more on quality. Well, maybe that's a discussion for another day. We can probably do an entire industry like, episode on
0: that. Yeah, I certainly think we could. So again, recommend checking out the report. As you will see, not you know, not not every hack um, saw a decline. Pressure ulcers, slight increase here, as well as caudies. But overall, again, some really good news here in the totals. So check it out. Share it with your physicians. Okay, we're going to wrap up here with just a quick actus update just wanted to let you guys know that um, we are offering coming up in july and into august um, our our clinical coding highlight series these are replays of sessions that we offered at the actus conference they will be presented live via webinar format Um, there's going to be a total of eight shows and you know at at this price point it's a very good deal we're we're offering ceus and credits um, cme ccds coding credits for all eight of these programs. Um, You're welcome to attend these live. If you do miss them, we are gonna be recording them and putting them on a uh, page for you to access after the conclusion of the show, so you can listen um, in on-demand format as well. So go ahead and, and check those out. All right. Well, that's going to do it for today's edition of Actus Radio. So um, we're going to be actually coming back here for a a special show in just one week's time. We're typically in every other week cadence, as you probably know. But next Wednesday, June 27th, is a big number for us. It's our 100th episode of Actus Radio. Um, I'm not going to give away all of the uh, information or uh, what we're going to do for this show. It's going to be a little different. We're going to be bringing back one of our original guests on the show to talk about the profession and how it's changed and maybe have a little fun too. So I hope you can join us back here again in one week for the show. Again, want to thank Fassel Hussein for coming on. Nice job today and hopefully not your last program. Um, and for our listeners, if you have any suggestions or for future guests, ideas about the format of the show, if you like today's show about coding, gray areas, want to hear more, please send me an email at org. That will do it, Uh, and take care, everyone. We'll see you back here in one week.